Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word today, help us to set aside the thoughts of whatever we've been doing today, whatever is to come today. Focus our hearts so that we can see more clearly the one who calls us to himself. Thank you that no work is too hard for him. So help us to know his easy yoke and his light burden. Help us in light of what you will teach us from your word today to know him more to follow him in our lives with all their troubles, even though these may seem so, so worrying and so overwhelming. Draw us to him now, even as we come in his name. Amen. I wonder what comes to your mind when I mention the word suffering. It's not really a cheery way to start, is it? But perhaps images of sort of suffering on on a grand scale. You might think of a far off country, those adverts you see on TV, of children who are suffering, who are hungry, who have poor medical provision and so on. But suffering, although we might think of it in those kind of grand terms, at its core it is suffering because individuals suffer. It's one thing to say that a nation is suffering or that people, a people is struggling, but when you get to the root of it, it's individuals and their lives that are upset and suffering. I think that's certainly how Paul thinks about suffering in the passage that we're going to be looking at today. There's no doubt that there were other Christians who were suffering alongside him. In fact, he mentions them, but he very much focuses on his own struggles. Last week, we saw that Paul, along with Timothy, is writing this letter to the Philippians. Remember, he calls them saints, and he prays for them, that they would grow in their faith, that God would finish the work that he started in him, started in them, that that would come to completion when Jesus returns. But when we get to the verses that we read today, we learn something very interesting and very significant, and it's this. Paul is writing from jail. He's in prison He's being held by the palace guard in Rome, no less. Verse 13, he says, As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Paul is chained up in jail. He's suffering. But in the midst of this, Paul's actually quite happy. We see in verse 18 that he rejoices and he says he'll continue to rejoice. So what's going on here? Why is Paul so happy when really he shouldn't be. I think there's a massive amount we can learn from Paul in all of this because our society mightn't say it, but it's obsessed with the notion of being happy. People will say, well, do whatever makes you happy. So often we see somebody maybe making a bad choice in their life, maybe going into a relationship that we know won't be good for them or um, dropping out of a university course. I suppose I've seen that recently and and going off to do something else. They make a choice in their career that we know that it's not good for them. We know that it's not good that they did those things. It's not going to be good for them in the long term. But what do people say? Sure, as long as they're happy. As long as they're happy, that's the main thing. Really? They've just made a choice which is not going to be good for them, but we say, oh, well, sure, they're happy in the short term. That's all right. I think we have a really warped view 
of happiness. We tell people that it's okay not to be okay. And I think that's very true. And let me say before I say anything else that this morning, if you are struggling, if you're depressed, if, if things are going on in your lives which are very burdensome, well, then it is okay not to be okay. And you really ought to speak to somebody about that. And I will not be running away afterwards if you want to do that. But I think our society says it's okay not to be okay, but it doesn't really mean it. It says, well, it's okay not to be okay and speak to somebody, but when you speak to somebody, well, we'll try and fix you. We'll try and make you better. We'll try and get you to a happy place. It's not really okay not to be okay. We want to move you and we want to get you somewhere else. We have a warped view of happiness and we think it's the most important thing. One of the places where I see it is at funerals. Now, I'm not having a go at anybody here. I don't know if anybody has done this. But what you see more and more, it's still a minority, but it does happen. The most devastating thing that could happen to your family happens. Somebody dies. They lose someone they've loved. So what do they do? Let's all wear bright colors and have a service of celebration. What's that about? I don't understand that one single bit. I think it's bizarre. On one hand, yes, the person lived a good life and we want to celebrate it, and that's, that's, that's very good. But I think behind that, there's actually something else going on. People are afraid to confront grief and sadness, when really it is okay not to be okay. It's the most natural thing in the world to be sad at a time like that. But we think we have to be happy. We think we have to be celebrate. We run away from suffering. And I think people believe this. I think we have a tendency to believe that if we just do certain things right, then we, then we really will be happy. We can find happiness within ourselves. People do it in all kinds of places. I see people I know who do it in the gym. They say, if I transform my body, then, then my mental health is going to improve so much, I'm going to be really happy. One of my friends put up a post on Facebook a little while back with, with a, a load of books on it, a, sort of a lot of journals, and they said, I'm going to journal every day now, and I'm going to process my thoughts, and this is really going to boost my mental health. I'm going to be really happy. I wonder. And of course, many people look in the wrong places for happiness too, and those are probably quite obvious. But we think that if we're happy, we'll be content within ourselves, we'll have peace. I wonder, what do you do? if you think that you're suffering? Do you go to the, to the gym to burn off some of the anger and the tension that's within? Is there particular music you listen to to try and get rid of the stress? Those are good things. There's absolutely nothing wrong with those things. But I want to suggest today that they're probably not actually great solutions to the problems we face. Maybe you're here today and you are suffering. You mightn't put it in those terms, but really you are suffering. Maybe for you it's an issue in a relationship, in your marriage, in your family. Maybe it's something at work. When I started this job it was great, but I never thought I'd end up doing all this. So many things on your to-do list that you just think you can't cope. Maybe it's a struggle with sin for you. You feel like you just don't measure up in this Christian business and it's eating you up inside and you can't take it anymore. Where are you going to turn? What are you going to do? What does the Bible have to say about all of this? I think it's fair to say that Paul knew a thing or two about what it meant to suffer. Paul was in prison. We don't know how he was treated, if he was fed, what it smelt like, if there was any daylight or any of the rest of those things. But the pressures were more than those physical things. 
We read in verse 17 that Paul was facing personal attack from others who were preachers of the gospel. These people were Christians. They should have been on his side, but they were trying to afflict him. He says, they preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. We don't know exactly what they were doing, but they were working against him, even though they were fellow believers. He had to ensure that the Philippians knew that the gospel was actually advancing because presumably they'd heard otherwise. Do you remember last week when Paul says at the very start about their partnership in the gospel? It's there in verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day till now. Well, later on in in chapter 4, we read that Paul thanks the Philippians for a gift that he's received from them. So they're partners, they're financial partners with him. But what's happened? He's ended up in jail. They probably think he has failed. You see that fellow Paul that we gave all that money to? He's wound up in jail. He's not going to be preaching the gospel anymore. That was a waste. And Paul doesn't know if any of this, any of his situation is going to change anytime soon. And it's not looking good. Maybe you know something of the feeling, I hope not physically, in a Roman jail in the first century. But perhaps you wonder if any end to your struggle is in sight at all. Where can you look to? When we find ourselves in an extreme situation with the pressures of life, how do we handle it? How should we approach it? Why does God allow it? Is there any point to it? If you're in the middle of anything like this this morning, I want to suggest to you that God's word is good news. And even there is hope of true happiness in it, even in the middle of it all. Because God's word tells us that there is purpose in our suffering. There is purpose in our suffering. I realize that if you're in the middle of something really awful at the minute, that might sound really dismissive and really glib. There's purpose in your suffering. Just just keep going. People might say that to you and you might say, well, that's easy for you to say, but you're not actually the one going through this. I don't know how often I have heard Christian people say, When I was going through that, I didn't see it at the time, but God was really at work. God was really moving. God was really growing me in my faith. I didn't know it then. I was really in the dumps then. But when I came out the other side, I looked back and I could see it. That might be true, but how do we know when we're in the midst that there is a purpose? Well, we might not always see it. And we have to say that we might not always see it. But knowing that there is a purpose can help us. Look at Paul. His suffering has actually advanced the gospel. We don't expect that. The Philippians certainly didn't expect it or else Paul wouldn't have written this. He says in verse 12, now I want you to know brothers and sisters that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And that word really, it has really served to advance the gospel. We don't really have a word that's equivalent of what the Greek word is there. It's essentially you would never, ever, ever have believed this would happen, but it really, really has. It's a really strong word that we just can't, we can't get into one word in English. It is actually served to advance the gospel against all the odds when it didn't look likely. This is what has happened. Isn't this amazing? And it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone that I am in chains for Christ. Those Roman soldiers, they know why I'm here. They've heard about Christ 
And because of my chains, verse 14, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Because of what has happened, we're even braver. We're even more better equipped to preach the gospel. I don't know if Paul expected that. The Philippians almost certainly didn't. In their culture, any kind of suffering would have been seen as complete failure. That's why crucifixion was the most embarrassing and awful and terrible death. If you could have been executed quickly like that, well, it wouldn't have been so bad. But if you actually had to suffer, that was so, so shameful. And you were seen as such a failure. Even though we know the story here, do we really expect suffering for Jesus to turn out for good? Suffering may well be for God's purposes, but the truth is that it might well be at our expense. Well, you might say, well, that's obvious. It's called suffering, isn't it? We're we're going to suffer. Well, yes, it is. But it might well be for God's purposes. And the purpose might well be that God is teaching us something. The Bible speaks of God disciplining us as a father disciplines his children. In another part of the Bible, when Paul is suffering in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about having a thorn in the flesh. We don't really know what the thorn in the flesh is, but he says this, so to keep me from becoming conceited, to be conceited is to be puffed up, for your head to be too big, for you to be overly confident in your own ability, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. We don't know exactly what this was, as I say, who this messenger of Satan was. But perhaps Paul just needed it at that time in his life so that he didn't try to go his own way in his struggles, but instead to depend on God fully. There's purpose in our suffering. Even if we don't see it, we can cling to the fact that there is a purpose. Just as the Philippians' concerns may well have been very genuine, and ours might be too, there is purpose. But God's word also tells us that ultimately our happiness does not come from anyone other than him. Others may or may not help us, but ultimately happiness and joy and peace are found in God alone through Jesus Christ. Recently, a friend of mine was going through a pretty tough uh, family situation. And he went and he met up with a friend of his who's a Christian girl. And he told her what he was going through. And the friend simply said, you know, you, you just have to trust in the sovereignty of God. That's all she said. And then she moved on and she started talking about something else. And she more or less showed that that she didn't care. She might have been right in what she said. She absolutely was right. God is sovereign. But my friend was left even more hurt. Other people often make our suffering even worse. And the sad thing is that some of those people might even be Christians. We're meant to be a church family and listen to one another and love one another, but often we don't help each other very much. Paul said it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. Some do it out of goodwill. But those who do it out of envy and rivalry, they preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? (laughs) The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And in that, I rejoice. Underline all of this is that God is still in control, that he is sovereign. There's still a purpose. Again, back to the thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians. Paul says this, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. 
But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, of my suffering, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. It's when we are weak, it's when we have no power to do anything to get out of the scenario ourselves. When we depend fully on God, it's then that we are at our strongest. It's then that we're free, in a sense, that we can begin to see God's purposes. It might seem a bit counterintuitive. It might seem like that's the wrong way around. But actually, it makes perfect sense. When we're weak, when we have nothing and Christ is everything, then that's when we're at our strongest. We get this from no one else. And that's why Paul says in verse 21 of Philippians 1, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. At the moment now, he's weak, and Jesus is everything. So to live now is Christ. He says in verse 20, I eagerly expect and hope that in no way I will be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. If I suffer now, well, Christ will be exalted in me. If I die even, Christ will be exalted in me. And in fact, that's even far better because I get to go and be with him, which is better by far, Paul says. But for now, he's going to live for Jesus. When we put our trust in Jesus, very simply, we get Jesus. We get his love and acceptance and forgiveness, even as we suffer, and perhaps even more so, actually, as we suffer. The worst this life can throw at us, it's death. But that, even for the Christian, is better. So there's purpose in our suffering. We might not see it now, but we know that there is a purpose. What should we do at these times? Well, we need to depend on God fully, not on anybody else, not on ourselves, so that we can be truly strong in the face of suffering in Christ. But what then about peace and happiness and all these things that Paul is talking about? What about those in the here and now? Is it possible in this life, especially when we're struggling, to know peace with God, to know happiness and and joy in our lives? I suppose an answer that I would want to say, well, yes, it is, but it might not come easily. Amazingly, we read in verses 18 and 19, when Paul has talked of his troubles in prison, when he said that his fellow Christians have been afflicting him, he says that he rejoices when Christ is proclaimed. And he goes on to say that he can rejoice even when faced with death. How does that come about? Well, later in Philippians, in chapter 4, Paul says this, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In every and every circumstance, listen, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I think it's so interesting that that last little sentence we we quote so often without really thinking about what Paul was going through when he wrote it. Paul was shipwrecked and arrested and beaten and imprisoned and rejected and shunned even by some fellow Christians. And he faced the prospect of death many times. And yet he says he learned how to be content in every situation. He learned the secret that allowed him to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the purpose in the suffering. We learn. 
We learn how to depend on God. Peace and happiness and joy are so possible for the suffering Christian. But the process of getting there, it's not just something that happens like that. It's a learning process. Paul encourages the Philippians. We read it in verse 27 of chapter 1. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Why is that? Look again at verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they'll be destroyed, but you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for him. Do you get what he's saying? We're called to obey even in in the midst of our suffering, even when it's tough, we're called to obey, to keep looking to Jesus, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, Paul says, so that others will see that we are saved by God. We have a savior who knows a thing or two about what it means to suffer. And he's also the one who in the middle of the most immense suffering we can imagine He obeyed. He obeyed. He's the one we're called to be like. I wonder does that maybe put our suffering in a slightly different light? If we're called to follow him, to be like him, to become like him in his death so that we might also share in his life. Does that show us something about the purpose of our suffering? And doesn't it give us great comfort to know that if we become like him in suffering, then we also share in his blessings in the here and now. Peace I leave with you, said Jesus. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you, I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. As I close, I want to ask a question that I think probably fairly obviously springs from all of this. And it's a very simple question. How? How do I do this? Sure, there might be some kind of purpose in my suffering. Okay, that's great. That might help me keep going. I can't see it now, but I trust that something will come of it. Happiness? Well, that seems far away just now, and I can't find it in other people. And it might take some learning, and that might not be easy, but I might get there. But how do I go on? How do I obey when it's hard? How, when I leave church today, how do I face the struggle? How do I find peace? Very simply, Jesus said, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. This peace, this rest, this true happiness, we can't make it ourselves. We can't create it. It comes simply and only through coming to Jesus Christ and depending fully on him. Friends, I confess to you this morning that I'm not very good at it. When things are tough for me, I like to think that if I just tried a bit harder, if I was a bit more organized, if I prayed a bit more, if I more strictly read my Bible every day, if I did this or that or whatever. But it doesn't work. It does not work. Why would it be that with everything God has given me, that when I face a tough time, I just try to get my way out of it myself? doesn't make any sense at all. We only grow closer to the Lord as we trust him and depend on him only. We look to him. 
We look to the future he has for us. That's why Paul said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he says elsewhere, therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what we see, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. This is the promise for all who come to Jesus and depend on him. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word does not disguise that this life, this life of following you, as we make our way through this world, it's tough. Lord, it involves suffering. It involves hardship and pain. But Lord, thank you that even through all of that, you're working for our good. You know us and you love us. And you have a purpose in our suffering. You are teaching us. Lord, if any of us are here this morning and and we just can't see the purpose in what we're going through right now, Lord, I pray that you would draw near to those people. Draw near to each one of us. Lord, help us to keep going. Help us to trust in you. Help us not to try and engineer some kind of happiness ourselves, but to fully depend on you and to know the truth of your word, that when you are weak, when we are weak, you are strong. Lord, thank you for that great promise in your word, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Lord, help us to fix our eyes upon Jesus in every and any situation in our lives. Lord, draw us closer to him for his sake. Amen.